Take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 is where we will start today. We are returning to our series entitled, A Look at the Book. What we are doing is going book by book through the Bible, summarizing what these books teach so that we can see the landscape of Scripture. In the next few weeks, we'll be finishing up the historical books with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So you might want to keep that in mind in your own reading as you prepare for the next few weeks. Today we're in Ezra, and here's the key concept today. Even after a detour, there is a way back to God's plan. Ezra is a book about the way back to God's plan after a major detour. Because the book of Ezra picks up the story of the exiles, the exiles who were, were taken away from the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and put in exile in Babylon. And we pick up the story years later in 538 B.C. as Ezra begins. The Babylonians are no longer in power. King Cyrus the Great, the ruler of the Persian Empire, has defeated the Babylonian Empire, and he is now in charge. The Persian Empire is the dominant world power. And when you hear the word Persia or read Persia in your Old Testament, think Iran. It's modern-day Iran. And so they are the, the dominant world power, but unlike the Babylonians, the Persians do not have a policy of the deportation of peoples. In fact, the Persian policy is that people can go back to their own homeland where they lived before they were conquered, as long as when they live in their homeland, they remember that they're conquered. And that basically means that they're willing to pay taxes. And that's what Cyrus wants the children of Israel to do, to go back to, to populate Judah once again and to rebuild their temple and practice their religion. Now that last part is important to him. Archaeologists have found an object called the Cylinder of Cyrus. It's on the screen. This Cylinder of Cyrus, the same Cyrus we're talking about here in the book of Ezra, and on it he inscribes or he had inscribed his wishes for the way that he governed his, his people. And he says in the, in the cylinder here that he expresses his hope that the conquered people will go back to their own homeland, what he calls their sacred cities, and in those sacred cities they will rebuild their temples and in their temples that they will pray to their gods for him. And furthermore, the cylinder says he hopes that their gods, because it's not just the Jews he's sending home, he's sending home all those who were deported, that their gods will pray to his God for him. So this policy was a way to get uh, Cyrus uh, supernatural help as he sees it from all sides. And so he's very willing to let the children of Israel go home. Now, the book of Chronicles that we, we looked last time we were in this series uh, is written by Ezra as an inspirational book to give to those who will return to the homeland a picture for why it's so important that they live out their calling as God's chosen people. And the, they have that. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the book, these books we'll have in the next couple of weeks, this is a chronicle of their return, the story of the return. 
Now, before we get into it, I just want to uh, take a little parenthesis here because over the last few historical books that we've looked at, uh, I've mentioned to you that very often the books that are divided into two in our Bible were just one book in the Hebrew Bible. That's true of Samuel, that's true of Kings, that's true of Chronicles, and it's also true of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is one book in the Hebrew Bible simply called Ezra. And you might ask the question, well, why is it that in the Hebrew Bible these are one book, and in the Greek and English Bible, these all have been divided into two books. And there's a very easy answer for that, and it has to do with the languages. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have something that Greek and English has, vowels. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So let's look on the screen, the Hebrew words. I've put on the, on the word, the Greek word for word, which is logos, you see it there? And then the Hebrew word for word, which is Dabar. Now, notice the Hebrew word is much shorter because it doesn't have any vowels. The vowel sounds are those little dots and points and so forth uh, around the consonants in Hebrew. So, keeping that in mind, when you write out a Hebrew text, you can get a whole lot more words on a scroll than when you write out a Greek text. And so when the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek in the intertestamental period, that's when these books were divided into two because the Greek simply didn't fit. So it's a very common sense answer for the question of why, why these books were divided. And so uh, um, that's, that's where we are. And we also notice that Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these books all are in the same time period. Ezra is a, uh, is a picture of the return. Esther, where we end the historical books, is a picture for what life was like in Babylon for the Jews. So anyway, with all that in mind, we're in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, seeing the return decree. Here's what we read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed to me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And so during the first year of his reign, Cyrus lets the Israelites return. And about 50,000 of them take him up on this offer. Not everybody, because many uh, uh, Jews in Babylon have lives, have businesses, have families, and they see that this is going to be a very tough job to build the city and the temple once again. In fact, those who do return, return in three waves of immigration. This is the first one here under Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., 50,000 people go back. And then later on in, in chapter 7 and 8, we see under Ezra a second return. It's much smaller in number, but Ezra leads that. And then in Nehemiah, 444 B.C., Nehemiah leads the third wave of people coming back to Jerusalem. And Ezra tells us that all of this was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah had seen this coming. He saw the fall of Jerusalem coming because the people were not obeying the word of the Lord. He knew destruction was at hand, but he prophesied that the destruction, the, the exile, all of this would just be for a period of 70 years, and then they would return. Jeremiah 25 says this, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The fall of Jerusalem was in 586 B.C. 
Now, I'm throwing a lot of dates at you, and I don't expect you maybe to be doing the math. But if you were doing the math, you would find out that maybe we have a problem here, that Jeremiah was using the number 70 in a symbolic way. Numbers in Scripture sometimes are used in a symbolic way. The number seven is a number of completion. And 70 kind of puffing up the seven, it could very well be that, that Jeremiah is using that as a symbol to say when, you're, when your exile is good and done, completely over, then you will return, completely completed. They could be using it as a symbol for that. Or it could be that what we're meant to do is look at the year 538 B.C., when the release happens, and go back 70 years and say, what happened 70 years prior to that date, which might have gotten Jeremiah's prophecy clock ticking? The event that we read towards the end of Second Chronicles a couple of weeks ago, the death of good King Josiah, the king that brought revival back to the land, who was on fire for God, but the king who went to a battle that, Jer uh, that uh, Jeremiah said he shouldn't fight. You remember the Egyptians were moving up through Israel to go and fight Babylon when they were first getting strong as a kingdom. And, and Josiah was the one who led his, his forces out to intercept the Egyptian army. And Jeremiah said, don't do it. It's not your fight. Don't get involved. Don't go. But Josiah wouldn't listen, and he died on that battlefield. And it could very well be that that event started the prophecy clock ticking. It's like Jeremiah said, this is the beginning of the end. The die is cast. It's Babylon who will come and defeat Israel. Well, no matter which way we're meant to interpret it, by the time we get to uh, 538, Cyrus is on the throne and he makes a decree that the Jews should go back. But there's something else that's just fantastic about what's going on here. Because 140 years before this decree, the great prophet Isaiah prophesied that a man named Cyrus would release the Jews. In Isaiah 44, 28, we read this, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and the temple, let its foundations be laid. 140 years before Cyrus, before Cyrus was even thought of or born, Isaiah named him my name. And I like to imagine how this might have come to pass. Of course, it was Cyrus's policy to release, but, but why so quickly in his reign did he concentrate on the Jews? And I imagine that somebody probably showed that prediction in the prophet Isaiah to Cyrus himself. And I imagine that God uses his own word to prompt obedience to his will. But I can go even further than that. I think it's very possible that the person who showed that prophecy in the scroll of Isaiah to Cyrus is none other than Daniel, the Daniel who writes the uh, prophetic book in your Bible. Because we know that Daniel was a Jew in Babylon in the time of Cyrus, but more than that, we know that he was a governmental official in his government. So I can imagine Daniel pointing out to the king how the king's own policies correspond to the prophetic word and the will of God. And Cyrus fulfills both Isaiah's and Jeremiah's prophecy. But he has also some practical considerations in mind. Because on the other side of Judah, from where he is in Babylon, on the other side of Judah is Egypt. And Egypt is still at war with the Persians at this time. 
It's common sense to put uh, a people in between you and your enemy who owe you a big favor, right? So it's good business for Cyrus to send them back to Judah and 50,000 of them come. Under the direction of Zerubbabel, all of these returnees were from the southern kingdom, remember? They are all from Judah. And this is the period of history where they begin to be called Jews and where their faith begins to be called Judaism. And when they get back, the very first thing they do is they build an altar on the foundation of the altar of Solomon's temple and they worship the Lord. Go to chapter 3, verse 3. And we'll see that happen. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built an altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and the evening sacrifice. They recognize that it's a hard job and they need God's help. And so they begin the life of worship again. And as they're constructing the, the, the temple and laying the foundation, opposition begins to come against them. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read about the opposition. It says, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the, during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. What happens is they, the, the um, uh, enemies of the work of the temple begin sending letters back to the king in Persia. And construction stops on the temple for 16 years. What you have in chapters 4 and 5 of Ezra are samples of the kinds of letters that the enemies of God are sending back to the king of Persia. And you have to know something as you read the letters. Some of your Bibles will indent them differently than the rest of the margins. These letters are not given to you in chronological order. Okay, Ezra's not trying to do that. He's just showing you, here's a sample of the kinds of things that the opposition was saying and the kinds of things that the kings were saying back. And if you look at the timeline I gave you in the bottom of your outline, you'll see that they're not, they're not in chronological order. But the point for us is, just as they faced opposition in doing what is right, we too will face opposition in doing what is right. The saying goes like this, when God starts to bless, Satan starts to battle. And it's true in their life and it's true in our life. You will have opposition to working the works of righteousness. You will have opposition to speaking the word of the gospel. You will have opposition to do the will of the Father. It's always been that way. But we must not allow that opposition to stop us and understand for what it is. As Kenny mentioned earlier in the beginning of the, uh, beginning of the service. Well, eventually, one of these letters comes to King Darius, and they ask, Darius, why don't you look in the records of King Cyrus and see if he ever even gave permission for this temple to be built? Decree of Cyrus that we read in the beginning of this, uh, in the beginning of this uh, sermon. And he saw that it was indeed the will of, of uh, the kingdom of Persia that the Jewish temple be rebuilt. And he orders it to start building again. But that's not all. Go to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, verse 8, we read the decree of Darius. He goes on and he says, Moreover, verse 8, Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews uh, what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. 
the taxes that we would have collected from this area are not going to come into the kingdom treasury, but rather divert the, tr the taxes to the building of the temple. Darius, a pagan king, is saying, I will pay for the temple to be rebuilt. And then, to show you that he really wants this to get done, go down to verse 11. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And this, for, the crime of, and this, for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. In other words, Darius is saying, I don't want to have this discussion anymore. Build the temple. When our kids were growing up, Sylvia and I used to have a slogan. When we asked them to do something, we would say, obey without delay. That's what Darius is saying. Obey without delay. We didn't include the whole, or we will impale you on a pole <laughs> portion, but that's kind of what he's saying here. Get going. And they do. And chapter 6, they build the temple, they, they uh, celebrate the Passover, and the temple is completed in 515 B.C. And so as we come to chapter 7, here's what you need to know. Between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, you have a time gap of 60 years. And if you don't know that, you're going to get confused because that time gap of 60 years is an important time. By the time chapter 7 rolls around, it's not Darius on the throne anymore. It's Artaxerxes. And Ezra serves in the, in the, in the palace of Artaxerxes. The interesting thing about Artaxerxes is that Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. Now, Xerxes, in your Bible, is called Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus was the husband of Esther. And so the book of Esther fits in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. It's just a glimpse into what life was like back in Babylon. But now Esther's husband's son, Artaxerxes, is on the throne and Ezra wants to lead a group back. And here's how Ezra describes himself in chapter 7, verse 10. This is what he says, his self-description. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. That is Ezra's mission statement for himself. Study the law, live the law, teach the law. What I want you to understand is how important it is to know your mission. Ezra understood his divine design. He knew who he was your insights, the passions that you care about, all of this stuff that we talk about in the Divine Design Seminar. And once you know your divine design and what God has placed you here to do for His kingdom purpose, if you can express that purpose in a sentence, just capture it, it gives you wonderful focus in life. And Ezra can do that. I'm here to study the law, to live the law, and to teach the law. And I want to go back to Judah to do just that. And in fact, Ezra turns out to be kind of like Thomas Jefferson for his people. He writes these important documents as he's a student of the law. And King Artaxerxes is happy to see Ezra go back and do all of that in Judah. And you might ask yourself, why are these pagan kings so happy to see these people return and worship God in, in Judah? Cyrus was happy to see it happen. Artaxerxes is happy to see it happen. Why is that? that in certain territories, certain nations, certain gods were powerful. Each nation had their god, and inside the territory of that nation, those gods were powerful. That's the doctrine that they believed. 
And that is why it was so horrible when an invading army would destroy your city. Not only was it a loss for you militarily, it was a statement that said that your God was too weak to defend you even on his own home turf. That was kind of the idea of the pagan mindset. And so Artaxerxes says, well, the God of the Jews is powerful back in Jerusalem, so that's where he needs to be worshipped and taught about. Okay? But the Jews didn't believe that. The Jews never believed that. They understood that there was one true God the maker of heaven and earth. They knew full well that there was no place where he wasn't the complete power, the ultimate almighty power. And they also recognized that that means that when they lose in battle, it's not because another god is beating up their god. It's because the one true god is using those circumstances to teach, to punish, and to purify his people. But at the flip side, it meant that when that punishment was over and it was time for mercy and forgiveness, nothing could hold it back. And so as they come back to Jerusalem, they're worshiping the one true God, even though the pagans misunderstood the way that this, this is working. And so in chapter 8, 1,700 people return with Ezra, and they witness the beginning of his teaching ministry back in Jerusalem. But when, when Ezra returns, he finds something tremendously disturbing. He finds that in the 80 years or so that the children of Israel, the, the Jews, have been back in Jerusalem, and Ezra understands that that is against God's will. God has clearly said, do not marry people who do not worship me because they will inevitably pull you away from true worship. He said that to the Jews as his holy people. He says that to us as well. Those who know Christ as personal Savior must not marry outside the faith. That is to be unequally yoked. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And marriage is the most obvious example of a yoked relationship. And that is why when couples come to staff members here at Quail and they, they wish to be married, we talk to them about their spiritual experience and where they are with the Lord. And if one of them is a believer and one of them is an unbeliever and that there's no opportunity or chance to change this, this position and bring this person to Christ, we, would, we do not perform those ceremonies. Why? Because we believe that God's word is still true. And we believe that God still calls his followers to be a distinct people. Set yourselves apart. And Ezra sees that the people have not been obeying that. We see that Ezra is so upset by what he sees in the nation that he goes to the front of the temple, which by now has been rebuilt, and he prostrates himself in front of the temple. He weeps and he wails for his people. He prays for them, prayers of repentance. Chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, men and women and children gathered around him. And if you read on through the details of chapter 10, you see that a massive repentance sweeps through the people, a massive revival, a desire to be pure and to honor God. Ezra says, make, makes the statement in, in 10, verse 10, you have been unfaithful, you have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives is a Christian and one is a non-Christian and, and do I say to the Christian well you should divorce this guy and move on 
Clearly, as we read the New Testament, the answer to that question is no. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. The point is stay and be the godly influence that you can be. It's a moment in time like no other because God is pulling his people back from the brink again. And he pulls them back and he says, you are to be a distinct people. You are to be a separate people. And so a radical solution had to be made. Ritual and relational purity of his people. When you are relationally unequally yoked, your service for your king will be difficult. If your spouse is not supportive of your spiritual walk, your walk will be hard. So young people, as you envision a future of marriage and family and so forth, envision a union which is emotionally, physically, and spiritually united. We see here that repentance requires action. When God touches a heart in conviction, he doesn't want that just to be, be a feelings of sadness. He wants new direction, a new purpose. Thirdly, God is faithful in keeping his promise in his time. Isaiah named names. Cyrus will be the guy to release you. 140 years later, that came true. Now, sometimes you will see a, a History Channel special on the Bible, or you'll read some guy who's writing on the Bible, and they'll talk about Isaiah, and they'll talk about what they call First Isaiah, Second Isaiah, sometimes even Third Isaiah, that anyone 140 years earlier would be able to prophesy by name the king who would release the children of Israel. But the Bible tells us that prophets spoke as they were moved by God, and God is an eternal being. He's outside the passage of time and he sees all time, all the time. It is not difficult for God to say it will be a guy named Cyrus who will be the one that does the release. You write it down because that prophecy will come true. God's word is always true. He keeps his promises. And now back in the land, they're able to establish the good kingdom once again. And the same is true in your life. If you're going through God's discipline, a time of difficulty, maybe going down the path you shouldn't go and you feel the pressure of God's hand against you, that discipline is for your good. Obey the word of the Lord and you see the blessing. The message is, even after a detour, there is a way back to the plan of God. It's true for them and it's true for you as well.